This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Consecrating Ourselves Unto God. In the first half, C. Raymond Smith shares his address, Depending on the Lord, Gospel Insights from a Musician. Then in the second half, Carrie M. Muehlstein speaks on why we must be wholeheartedly holy. Thirty years of college teaching, 32 years of parenthood, 40 years of church service, and 45 years of performing as a musician have convinced me that I am nothing. As to my own strength, I am weak. And I must fully depend upon the Lord if I'm to exceed in accomplishing anything good. You recognize those are nearly the words of Ammon in the book of Alma. Moroni said something very similar. And now I speak unto all the ends of the earth, that if the day cometh that the power and the gifts of God should be done away among you, it shall be because of unbelief. And woe be unto the children of men if this be the case. For there shall be none that doeth good among you. No, not one. For if there be one among you that doeth good, He shall work by the power and gifts of God. I know that is true. Those of us who have been given the gift of the Holy Ghost will never achieve our full potential without His presence in our lives. In the words of the Savior Himself, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. I know I'm completely dependent on the Lord. But despite my weaknesses and inadequacies, and my mistakes and even failures, in his strength, many good things have also been accomplished. Early in my life at age three, I began a stream of experiences when I contracted polio that would always make me feel a keen sense of dependence on the Lord. This happened about six months before the vaccine was released that has now nearly eliminated this devastating disease in the United States. When we have the capacity to accomplish great good, there's always commensurate opposition and adversity to try to prevent us from fulfilling our potential. I've never begrudged having this challenge in my life because I think it has blessed me in my spiritual and musical development more than it could ever hinder me. I believe, too, that the Lord has used this adversity in my life to better prepare me for a world dominated by humanism, Humanists believe that man must succeed completely on his own abilities with no supernatural power to help. They believe in depending on themselves, not the Lord. There is a terrifying scripture about that in the book of Helaman. In the chapter 4 of the 13th verse, Helaman records about the people of that time. And because of their boastings and their own strength, they were left in their own strength. Therefore, they did not prosper. I needed and felt that extra power from the Lord from early in my life. Because of the polio, I went through a series of surgical operations. Each time I faced one of these corrective procedures, my father would give me a priesthood blessing. I remember one post-surgery follow-up visit when my doctor, Paul R. Milligan, a fine man, not of our faith, commented, Raymond, I always love to operate on you because everything we do works so well and you heal so quickly. I knew the source of that power, Through such experiences, my faith developed. I recognized my clear dependence on the Lord, and I learned to pray. I delight in an analogy that was offered by the late Truman G. Madsen some years ago. Quote, even at our best, we are like the blind boy who walks with his friend. He does not believe nor bluff that he is self-sufficient. Instead, he responds to the slightest nudge. 
If you would know the power of God, try early in life to become just this dependable in your dependence. End quote. Also early in my life, from age eight, I was blessed with opportunities for involvement and growth in my present field of study, music. By metaphor, music has given me many gospel insights that have further helped me to learn my dependence on the Lord and the trust in Him that comes from that dependence. I knew when I became a student of music at BYU that I would not be able to succeed without the blessings and extra help of the Lord. So I decided from the beginning that I would try to keep myself in a position to receive that help. I decided that meant that I must keep the Sabbath day holy by not studying and practicing on the Lord's day. I was also determined that I would keep first things first in my life by reading my scriptures daily, praying daily, attending the temple regularly, and serving faithfully in my callings and as a home teacher. As a student here, I was inspired by the president of BYU at that time, Dallin H. Oaks, when he spoke at a devotional like this and shared with us his commitment to keep the Sabbath day holy while he was a law student in Chicago. His words, quote, I had a personal experience that taught me for all time the importance of observing the Sabbath. As a Brigham Young University student married with two small children to support, I had a job that required me to work on the Sabbath. Consequently, I did not enjoy the blessings of the Sabbath in full measure, despite my efforts always to attend at least one of my Sabbath meetings. When I left this campus to study at the University of Chicago, my mother reminded me that my father had never studied on the Sabbath during his professional training. She said to me very casually, Son, if you want to enjoy that blessing, you should arrange your activities so that you never do anything on the Sabbath, except partake of the spiritual food that is available to you on the Lord's day. I made up my mind at that time that I would observe the Sabbath faithfully so that I could qualify for the blessings of spiritual growth and the companionship of the Spirit that come from observing faithfully the Sabbath of our Lord. I testify to you that I realized those blessings in measurable ways on innumerable occasions. We read this in Isaiah about the Sabbath. And I affirm to you its truth. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, and shalt honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth, and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. End quote. The Lord also gave me encouragement in my own learning process about the Sabbath with many small miracles along the way. One remarkable experience I will share with you, hoping that it will encourage you in a similar approach in your life. I was taking that certain class that all majors have at least one of, the one that strikes fear into the heart of every student, one even mentioned. We were preparing for the final exam and had been given a study page of terms and questions. At the encouragement of the teacher, we had formed study groups, farmed out research, and shared with each other. But on the day of the test, I still had not covered all the questions. We were told that we would be given two questions that we would write about for 30 minutes each and one question that we would write about for an hour. Therefore, I needed to be prepared with an hour's worth of material for every question on that study list. The task was overwhelming. The morning of the test came, and an hour and a half before the test, I was on my knees pleading with the Lord for help to know how to best use that last hour and a half of study time. I told the Lord that I had kept first things first in my life according to my commitments and that I now really needed His help. As I prayed, I looked down the study list lying on the bed in front of me. I was impressed to study one particular question. Every other time I went by that question, I skipped it. Because it was just so big, I thought, no one with a human bone in his body would ask that question. I similarly rationalized it again and went on past it. But as I finished the list, nothing else stood out to me. 
I started down the list again from the top. And when I came to that same question, it really hit me over the head. Ray, wake up. That's the question, I said to myself. I spent the next hour and a half outlining an answer for that question and then fleshing out the outline from my class notes and from the textbook. When I arrived at the test site, the teacher announced that he had changed his mind and there would be only one question on the test. And we would need to write two hours on that one question. Well, you can guess which question it was. I was so grateful for the Lord's guidance. I got a good grade on that test, and an hour and a half earlier I would have flunked it. I knew where that gift came from and why. Similarly, I had much miraculous help when I kept my commitment to the Lord about the Sabbath day. When I returned from my mission, writing was not a strength for me. I found it very difficult, and my freshman English class was all about writing compositions. And for some reason, they were always due at 9 every Monday morning. There were numerous times when I was still struggling with it late Saturday night. It was so tempting to work on it on Sunday, but I did not. I would get up early Monday morning and go after it, and often it would just flow. It felt so different than it had on Saturday night. I usually got it done by 9, but occasionally I did not. When that was the case, I would go to the class, and it would often turn out that Many of the students in the class didn't have it finished, and so the teacher would grant us until Wednesday. Or the teacher would be sick, and I would get an automatic extension until Wednesday, or some other intervention. But I can testify to you that I was never penalized on my grades for keeping the Sabbath day holy. Now, this would not have been the case if I was slacking off in my studies or failing in my spiritual obligations. I knew the Lord would not just do the work for me if I had not done my very best. A few years later, in graduate school in Indiana, a fellow student came into my practice room just before spring break. He looked quite dejected. Gary, what's bothering you? He was upset because he had decided to go to Florida with some friends for spring break, and that would mean he would not practice for a whole week. I said, Gary, lighten up, man. You'll do better when you get back because of the break. It'll be better than if you'd stayed here the whole time working. You really think so? He said. Yes, why, I take a day off every week, and things always go better because of it. He was incredulous. We began comparing practice routines. He was practicing three hours during the day and two hours after dinner, plus 12 hours each Sunday. I was practicing the three hours during the day, but often missed the two hours in the evening because I was working with the full-time missionaries, and I wasn't practicing at all on Sundays. This was a real testimony to me of the Lord's blessings in my practice because Gary and I were always in a friendly competition for the best playing opportunities, and I always seemed to stay just a little ahead of him in auditions and ensemble placement. I have found the same holds true when it comes to professional work. I've never been able to justify that my particular talents and services were needed professionally on the Sabbath day. I'm often invited by others to work on the Sabbath day. And it would be tempting if I didn't know that depending on the Lord deals much greater benefits than Sabbath employment. This was a learning curve for me, however, and I still remember one of my early, early experiences with this. I was a student here at BYU and getting calls to play professionally, usually in Salt Lake City. This particular call, though, was to play in Boise for the Buddy Morrow Orchestra. It was very tempting because I was two months behind on rent and had no money for food. This job would have paid both months' rent and put me back on my feet with some food, but it was on Saturday and Sunday. I was still trying to develop the faith and trust to really depend on the Lord in these kinds of situations, so I didn't have a pat answer ready. I said to the caller, let me check on those dates and I'll call you back within half an hour. I immediately went to my knees to check on the dates, and I knew what I must do. I called him back and said, I'm sorry, but I have another commitment on that weekend. 
I did not explain to him that it was my commitment to the Lord to keep the Sabbath day holy. But as I hung up, I felt the confirming burning of the Spirit in my heart, and I knew that the Lord would take care of me somehow. It doesn't always happen so soon, but it was less than 24 hours later when another call came, this time to play for the Shrine Circus in Salt Lake. It was for the same weekend, but it was on Friday and Saturday. I made 25 more dollars than I would have in Boise, and I was glad I was in my meetings that Sunday when I was called into the Elders' Quorum Presidency. It doesn't seem logical that if I turn down work, I'll make more money. Or if I study one day less in a week, I'll get better grades. Similarly, it does not seem logical that if I pay my tithing, I can really do more with 90% of my income. But that's because part of the equation is missing. It really isn't that I can do more with 90% than 100%. Rather, it is that 90% plus the Lord's blessings equals more than 100%. It is so with all things in life for those who recognize their dependence on the Lord and put Him first in their lives and trust Him to fulfill His scriptural promises. I love President Ezra Taft Benson's teachings about this. Quote, Men and women who turn their lives over to God will discover that He can make a lot more out of their lives than they can. He will deepen their joys, expand their vision, quicken their minds, strengthen their muscles, lift their spirits, multiply their blessings, increase their opportunities, Comfort their souls, raise up friends, and pour out peace. Whoever will lose his life in the service of God will find eternal life. End quote. I know that is true. When we learn these principles, then it is logical for us to consecrate all of our talents and efforts towards serving the Lord and building his kingdom. Consecration says, I will do what is right now and trust the Lord for the outcomes. Whereas aspiration says, I must do whatever it takes to control the outcome. If we aspire enough to certain goals and are willing to pay any price, we can accomplish those things. But sometimes the price is too high. We may lose our integrity or ultimately even our soul. And sometimes the things that we have aspired to do when we accomplish it does not turn out to be a blessing to us. But if we consecrate our preparations unto the Lord and leave the outcomes in His hands, the outcomes will always be a blessing to us. He can control the outcomes much better than we can ourselves. Learning to use our talents to build the kingdom started for me with my full-time mission. I put off going at first because I was serious about my music, and I wasn't sure I could put down my instruments for two years and then become competitive in my field ever again. It became an issue of faith and trust that if I consecrated those two years to the Lord, He would help me when I came back. Such has indeed been the case. I know that when we put the Lord first, then the blessings of support come when we need them. Some years ago, I attended the conference of the International Association for Jazz Education in Atlanta, Georgia. One of the presentations was by Kirk Whalum, a great tenor saxophonist and recording artist known as Mr. Soul in L.A. The title of his clinic was How to Become the In-Demand Recording Session Player. He started out by clarifying that the most important thing in becoming this in-demand session player was one's motive. He said to that audience that if their goal was to see their names up in lights on the marquee and to go into Tower Records and see their CDs behind the the name card, then there never was a better time than right then to just quit playing. He explained that that motive would never be strong enough to carry one through all that would be necessary. Then he said, I will tell you what your motive should be. God gave you your talent, and it is your job to hone it and give it back in service to his other children. I was thrilled to hear the gospel taught so clearly at an international assembly of jazz musicians. This principle does not just apply to musical talents, however. All of you have many talents of many kinds that have been given you so that you can serve more deeply. 
the prophet Jacob in the Book of Mormon also taught this principle when he said, But before you seek for riches, seek ye for the kingdom of God. And after you have obtained a hope in Christ, ye shall obtain riches if you seek them. And you will seek them for the intent to do good, to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry, and to liberate the captive, and administer relief to the sick and the afflicted. This applies not only to seeking riches, but also to developing our talents and honing our intellects. Many of my students are surprised to find out that when I was making decisions about my career, I never thought about how much money I would make or what was in it for me. That's not how we thought about it back then. My concern was, what are my talents? How can I best develop them so that I can make the greatest contribution of which I'm capable in the church and in society? I sometimes wonder how Brigham Young feels about our prevalent focus in our studies here on the campus today on how much money we can make. What's in it for me? It really is not about me. We enter to learn so we can go forth to serve. I have had to learn that in the performance arena. When we perform in front of others, it is natural to experience what is often termed stage fright. This can happen whether we perform a musical number, give a sacramenting talk, play on the football field, or any other similar performance opportunity. Why do we get so frightened? If I could be so blunt, it is because we are too focused on ourselves. Our performance becomes self-centered. I wonder if they like what I'm doing. I wonder if they're impressed. I wonder if they notice the mistake I made. I, I, I. Those thoughts are all about me. I've spent significant time in my life trying to learn to be other-centered in my performance, as I know the Savior would be. Is he not our exemplar in this area, too? If he were performing my part tonight, he would play with a confidence born of humility, that is, knowing the true source of all power. He would play with compassion and love. He would serve and build and lift with his performance. For years, I've spent time before an important performance reading the scriptures, such as Alma 26 and John 15, previously mentioned, and pondering and praying to have a private victory over any conflicting motives and to so align myself with my Heavenly Father's purposes that I can have the Holy Ghost to make me adequate to the situation. I often feel inadequate. This is simply because I am inadequate. But in His strength, I can do all things. I can be an instrument in His hands to bless and lift others. When I perform in this manner with the aid of the Holy Ghost, I can play beyond my natural abilities. And as Moroni put it, if there be one among you that doeth good, he shall work by the power and gifts of God. Also from Roni, And Christ hath said, If you will have faith in me, you shall have power to do whatsoever thing is expedient in me. As a jazz musician, when I perform, I am an improviser. That means that I am responding to the very moment and making up what I am playing right on the spot. One improvisation scripture is found in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 84, verse 85. Neither take ye thought beforehand what ye shall say, but treasure up in your minds continually the words of life, and it shall be given you in the very moment that portion that should be meted unto every man. At first glance, that sounds like the Lord's telling us not to worry about preparing what we'll say, but just wing it and it'll turn out all right. We don't need to prepare anything. That, of course, is not what he's saying. Rather, we are to prepare continually, and then the Spirit can bring out of us that which is needed for the very moment that which is needed to bless another or to bless others. I cannot improvise a jazz solo without any preparation if I have not been preparing for it all my life. This is exactly how the Lord would like us to do missionary work these days. 
When I was a missionary, we had to memorize every word of the discussions, word perfect. But now the Lord wants us to move to the next level and know the gospel and the scriptures so well that the Spirit can bring out what is needed for the very moment. This has always been the standard for teaching the gospel, whether in missionary work or home teaching or family home evening. But now the Lord is asking us to actually grow into that standard. Of course, this is also the standard for a jazz musician, to be so prepared that he can improvise to bless and lift others in their lives. At the time of Joseph Smith, and still today, Christendom in general teaches that the creation of the world was like a magic, magic trick. God said, abracadabra, and poof, the world sprang into existence, so to speak. Joseph Smith taught us that it did not happen that way. But rather, God took existing materials, which, by the way, cannot be created or made, but are co-eternal with God, and organized them into a new form. Here are Brother Joseph's words, quote, The word create came from the Hebrew word bara, bara, which does not mean to create out of nothing. It means to organize. The same as a man would organize materials and build a ship. Hence, we infer that God had materials to organize the world out of chaos, chaotic matter, end quote. If that is the creative process for God, I don't think that we are going to improve on that definition of creativity. Many of us are trying to pursue studies in creative fields. In the visual arts, we're trying to organize color and shape and line as they exist in space. In music, we're organizing sound colors, both vertical and horizontal, as they exist in time. And the same with the many other fields of creative endeavor. We then are in the process of mastering control over those materials so that we can organize them in such an expressive way that we become a blessing to others. As President Boyd K. Packer said it, through what artists do, we can quickly learn spiritual truths that otherwise would take us much longer to learn. That is our privilege and responsibility as creative people. Again, it is not about me or us. It is about depending on the Lord to bring out of us what will be a blessing to others and build His kingdom. I count it a great blessing to be able to use my professional talents to serve the Lord. It has been such a wonderful blessing for me to be able to tour internationally with Synthesis and use the music that I love so much to do missionary work. We don't actively proselyte when we tour so much as we try to create goodwill and make friends for the church. Believe it or not, the Lord is able to do this with the jazz band as his vehicle. When people see these clean-cut, wholesome-looking young people playing so well, there's something miraculous that takes place. Often people will come to the stage after the concert and ask, what is it that's different about this band? There is something different that comes from the stage than any other group I've ever heard. It's like there's some kind of love or something that emanates from the stage. They don't know how to say, I'm feeling the spirit. But they are touched and they want to know what's behind that. We always try to make sure that the people know who we are and who sponsors our trip to their country. After introducing and thanking local sponsors, I will also add that we come from Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah, the USA, and that our university is owned and operated by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And without the church's sponsorship, we could not be there. I will pause and then say, yes, uh, you're right. You're looking at a whole stage full of Mormons. But don't be alarmed. We're pretty nice people when you get to know us better. <laughs> I like to tease them a little bit. Then I'll add, You've probably seen these fellows walking or riding bicycles, you know, with the white shirts and the ties and the name tag. And maybe they've even knocked at your door before. There are always smiles and a few knowing nods. You have to realize that they're in love with the band by this time, late in the concert. So when I say, all of these guys on the stage with me have been those guys, there's always a buzz in the audience. <laughs> then I even introduce uh, where some of the band members have served on their missions. 
This seems to help break down fears and prejudices. Often, even applause will result. After one concert in Durham, England, a fellow from the audience came up and talked to Stan Taylor, our tour leader, and said, If those guys knock at my door, I'm going to let them in. The real key to serving with our talents is to have the Spirit with us. When I was a missionary, I read at the top of the second page of my mission handbook, The Key to Spirituality. This was before the mission handbook was standardized. This would have been unique to my mission. It said, Arise at six each morning and pray intently, hungering and thirsting for the influence of the Spirit to fill your body until it does. Of course, the time of rising is negotiable. That was just our mission rule. When I was uh, out about five weeks, I was called to train a new missionary, and I really felt my inadequacy. It was the blind leading the blind. I decided I must have the Spirit if I were to succeed. So I started applying this key to spirituality. I'd prayed for the Spirit before, but I'd never prayed until the Spirit. It was difficult at first. I tried to repent and humble myself and struggle in prayer until I felt the Spirit. I'd already had experiences in the first weeks of my mission that had shown me the difference between working with the power and gifts of God and working with the power and gifts of Ray Smith. The difference was stark, and I knew that it was hardly worth walking out the door to do the work if I did not have the Spirit with me. I learned that I really could feel the Spirit on a daily basis. It became the norm for the rest of my mission. When I left my mission to come home, I realized that I needed the Spirit just as much at home as I did in the mission field. I decided to continue the practice of praying daily until I felt the Spirit. I'm still doing it today. After returning home, I found a quote from Truman Manson. Happy is the youth who prays first for, then until, and finally with this subtle flame. I've experienced the power of that idea. This daily maintenance of our spirits is something that has a strong metaphor in music. If I miss days of practice, my performance will lack that edge of excellence that I will have if I am paying the daily price. No matter how well or how much I practice one day, I must repeat it the next day. Professional calls sometimes come at the last minute or with very short notice. I must always be prepared for that call, and I must always have a good read and have my instrument in good working order. Our daily scripture study and prayer and daily obedience will make of us sharp instruments that can respond to every opportunity for service, even on short notice. Just as in practicing music, we repeat things over and over until they become easier and more natural for us. We must repeat prayer and scripture study and church and temple attendance over and over until they become natural and we become really good at them. It takes perseverance and patience whether we're practicing our discipline or practicing spiritual things. One of the things I'm always on the line for when I perform or record musically is to play in tune with the other players. When I think about how critical it is to my professional success to always be in tune, it makes me realize how much I should always pay attention to being in tune with my Father in Heaven so I can best serve Him in my spiritual performance. This is vastly more important performance than on the concert hall stage or in the recording studio. Well, thank you for letting me share these thoughts with you this morning. A lifetime of service in the church and of service as a musician has taught me that I am completely and utterly dependent on the Lord for my success. That is because it is not about me. There is a much bigger cause. Heavenly Father has said, For behold, this is my work and my glory, to bring to pass the immortality and the eternal life of man. And I echo with Alma, Yea, and this is my glory, 
that perhaps I may be an instrument in the hands of God to bring some soul to repentance. And this is my joy. I testify that that is the greatest joy, to bring souls to our Father. We can do this through our professional work and our spiritual work, but we cannot do it alone or on our own power. As we depend on the Lord and trust Him, we will be empowered to bless the lives of others and to help build the kingdom of God and redeem Zion. This will be our greatest privilege and our greatest joy. I testify that this is true. I testify that God lives and that Jesus is the Christ. He is our great example and our great strength. I so testify with love and warmest wishes for each of you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Consecrating Ourselves Unto God. We've just heard from C. Raymond Smith. After the break, we'll return with Carrie M. Muehlstein for Why We Must Be Wholeheartedly Holy. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Consecrating Ourselves Unto God. Next is Carrie M. Muehlstein, BYU professor and associate chair of the Department of Ancient Scripture at the time of this address, titled Why We Must Be Wholeheartedly Holy. In a minute, as we get going, I'll draw on the academic disciplines of Egyptology and biblical studies, which I've been so steeped in for the last few decades. But I want to start out by trying to draw an analogy from one of my favorite things to do, water skiing. The way I read the accounts of the Savior and Peter on the Sea of Galilee, it seems to me that water skiing is the closest thing we have to a celestial sport, and I can't get enough of it. In fact, one year, my brothers, a cousin, and I made the goal of skiing in Utah Lake every month of the year. During January and February, we questioned the wisdom of this goal, but we did it. I skied every time I got the chance. During all of these years of skiing, I had the chance to teach a lot of people to ski. I'd guess I taught around 100 people. As I did so, I realized that there were really only three things a person had to do to learn to ski. The first was to keep their skis together. Often the pressure of the water would cause a person to do the splits, and it's really pretty hard to ski that way. But there are ways to tie skis together, and so this wasn't the biggest problem. The most difficult problem came because as the boat pulls you, you have an instinctive tendency to try and stand on top of the water. As a result, just as the boat pulls up most people, they usually pull on the ropes and push with their legs. Instead of this being helpful, both of these actions tend to pull your legs out from under you and you immediately fall. Most of the time, the action of pulling on the rope was so instinctive that people didn't even realize they had done it. I can't tell you how many times I repeated the mantra, arms straight, knees bent, skis together. I would explain again and again that the boat was strong enough to pull a person up. They just had to be patient enough to let it. And here is the lesson. When they learned to forget about using their own strength to get up, but relied on the power of the boat, they would ski. When you master your impulse to pull yourself up, you get on top of the water, and then the ability to accelerate, to cut through the water, to float on a sea of glass, and to sail with an amazing feeling of freedom and exhilaration are waiting for you. While this analogy can be applied in a number of ways, today I want to compare it to something I have seen that ancient Israel struggled with. During the two decades that I have been teaching Old Testament, 
I have found that for most of us, it just seems weird when we read about ancient Israel's struggle with idolatry. We just can't imagine why they would stop worshiping Jehovah and instead worship things carved from wood or stone or molded from metal. And we ask ourselves, what were they thinking? What is wrong with them? Yet I have found that we should never ask ourselves what is wrong with them, but instead we should ask what is wrong with them and me. If ancient Israel struggled with something, surely we struggle with it as well. We should not ask ourselves if we struggle with things that tempted them, but rather should ask how we do that. I have also found that we can more easily answer this question when we come to a more accurate view of exactly what ancient Israel was struggling with. I believe we're wrong when we think that they stopped worshiping Jehovah and started worshiping other gods. While a few did stop worshiping God, most kept worshiping Jehovah. They just added the worship of other gods also. They worshiped Jehovah and Asherah, or Jehovah and Baal, and Chemosh, and Molech, and so on. The problem is that everyone around them was doing this. Their neighbors had gods that they focused on, but they were very willing to adopt new gods as they encountered them. As Israel drank from the culture around them, it only seemed natural to keep worshiping Jehovah but to also worship the things their neighbors worshiped. Most likely, many of them felt just fine about doing this because they continued to feel quite devout towards Jehovah. It is this attempt to worship more than one god at the same time that Elijah addressed on Mount Carmel when he challenged the priests of Baal. During that contest, he thundered out to Israel, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. The word halt here does not mean stop like we usually think it does. It's used the same way it is in the New Testament to mean that someone is lame or unable to walk. Perhaps a better translation would be, How long limp ye between two opinions? Elijah was not asking them why they couldn't choose which God to worship but rather was pointing out that they couldn't really go anywhere as long as they were trying to worship both gods. In effect, by relying on something in addition to Jehovah, they were pulling their legs out from under themselves just as did those who were trying to learn to water ski but relied on their own strength as well as the boats. Now that we know that ancient Israel was worshiping both true God and false gods at the same time, our task is, as I said earlier, not to ask ourselves if— but how we do the same thing. I believe there is no doubt that we all worship more than one God. For some of us, instead of worshiping Jehovah and Baal, we worship Jehovah and football. (laughs) For others, it's video games or material possessions or a whole host of other things. Yet over the last 20 years, as I have tried to observe the way we struggle with idolatry, I have become convinced that on the whole we struggle with one kind of false god more than any other. We tend to worship the ideas of the world. And like those who pull on the water ski rope, we don't even realize we're doing it. The problem is that the world has been shouting its ideas at us loudly and incessantly from the time we were very small. We encounter these ideas in our schools from kindergarten through college. We are inundated with them as we read newspapers, watch TV and movies, listen to the radio, and in a hundred other ways. Many of the concepts we encounter are really harmless enough, but most of the time we're not very careful in sifting through the ideas we hear and I am certain we have all swallowed a lot of fallacious and dangerous ideas without even realizing it. As President Monson said at the rededication of the Boise-Idaho Temple, you, quote, walk in a world saturated with the sophistries of Satan, close quote. Sadly, Satan's ideas are so prevalent and often so subtly, consistently, and insidiously conveyed that we usually aren't aware we have adopted them. 
We drink so heavily from the well of the world's influence that it can become part of the fabric of who we are without our even knowing it. And so we keep pulling on that water ski rope and wondering why our spiritual legs keep going out from under us. Of late, several of our leaders have spoken of the danger of trying to simultaneously worship both the worldly God of tolerance and follow the true God's teachings of right and wrong. Perhaps I can add an illustration from my own classes. Back when I regularly taught World Civ courses, we would discuss the cultures found in ancient Mesoamerica. A small part of our time was spent discussing the violent rituals of human sacrifice that the Spanish conquistadors encountered when they got there. As I tried to frame a discussion about these violent acts and their effect on cultural interaction, I often asked my students what they thought about these horrific rituals we were discussing. I found that if I asked about the ritual practice, it was quickly condemned. But if I phrased it in terms of what my students thought about this element of ancient culture, I was lucky if even one student would speak negatively of it. My students had been taught so regularly and so thoroughly that we must be tolerant of other people's cultures that they just couldn't get themselves to say that human or child sacrifice was a bad element of culture. Now, I believe the Bible is fairly clear on this point. Any number of passages make it plain. Human sacrifice, bad. (laughs) Yet too often my students couldn't quite commit to this gospel truth because it conflicted with the ideas of the world they had been immersed in since their youth. Without realizing it, they had begun to struggle with trying to worship God and the ideas of the world at the same time. If they had a hard time condemning human sacrifice, I can only imagine what else the world had convinced them they should not call wrong. The ways of the world were surely affecting their ability to fully see things the way God wanted them to. Insightfully, President Packer warned that the virtue of tolerance could become a vice in just this way. Now, don't get me wrong. In its place, tolerance is a wonderful virtue, and I'm not preaching intolerance. But for it to be a virtue, tolerance must be felt and practiced in God's way, not the world's. When we try to practice godly virtues in the way the world wants us to, then we are halting between two opinions. We are doing our own version of worshiping Jehovah and Baal at the same time. Of course, adopting the worldly version of tolerance isn't the only way we do this. In many ways, each of us falls for even more subtle idols of worldly influence thinking. Often the most subtle false idea gods start out as something good. Ancient Israel struggled with this too. I hope my Old Testament class is paying attention. This will save us time in class. For instance, in biblical times, it became a practice in many places to set up a stone that would remind people of God. This practice probably started out with harmless intents. God had even commanded Israel to take stones from the Jordan River and set them up to remind them of how he had parted it for them as they entered the Promised Land. These stones weren't carved, so they weren't graven images, and it actually is a very good thing to have something that helps you think of God more often. Stones that were designed to remind the Israelites of God were called matzebot in Hebrew. The problem with matzebot is that they didn't just remain stones that reminded you of God. Over time, they became objects of adoration they slowly shifted into a kind of idol. My guess is that our Israelite ancestors didn't recognize they had made the change. The idolatrous shift in their hearts went unnoticed. And so we have to ask ourselves again, not if, but how, we do this same thing. How do we start out with good intents and yet let ourselves be influenced by the ideas of the world in such a way that soon good things become idols? I am sure that we do this in too many ways to count, but let me talk about a few of the more common ways. In our church, we value hard work. We value doing well. We value taking care of our families and contributing to the community. 
Typically, we start out wanting to do well at our jobs, do well at school, do good things in the community, learn to play the piano or sing, and so on, all because we see it as a thing that will help us build the kingdom of God. But the world sees these things as markers of success in and of themselves, not as ends to the means of furthering the cause of Zion. And we fall into that trap so easily. As the world lauds these accomplishments, it usually doesn't take long until we start to use worldly standards and measure success by how well we do at work or what kinds of degrees we have or how much recognition we get from others for the things we do or the talents we have developed. The problem is not in doing well at any of these things, but it becomes a problem when we believe the world that this is how we measure success. While all of these things are worthwhile in some ways, I doubt very much that this is how God measures success. In fact, the Savior said, quote, That which is esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Close quote. Yet it is so easy for God's voice to be overpowered by, or at the very least strongly mingled with and diluted by, the voice of the world. And when we start to let the world define prestige or success for us, then we have erected Matzebot in our lives. We have pulled our legs out from under ourselves. Let me see if I can provide an even more concrete example of how this might happen. Clearly, the most important endeavor you will undertake in this life will be within the walls of your own home. Much of what you will spend the rest of your life doing will center around your family. You will try to earn money to support a family. You will be involved in schools and community groups, perhaps even politics and social movements, all in an effort to create an ideal environment for your family. At the same time, many of these things will bring the praise of the world. But the world does not value these efforts for the same reason God does. Without great care, eventually the praise of the world will cause us to adopt the world's values. We begin to do these things to help our family and to garner the acceptance of the world. We try to serve two masters or limp between two opinions. As we pursue this course, and to some degree we all do, times will arise that will force us to make choices. Do we spend a little more time away from family to find success at work, in the PTA, on mommy blogs, in a reading club, on the golf course, and so on? All of these things can be very good, and in fact, the outward actions of someone who is single-mindedly serving God may look exactly the same as the actions of someone who is believing both God and the world's ideas. What we must ask ourselves is if we are doing what we do because of the world's values as much as because of God's. Sadly, when we have begun to savor the values of the world, we are in a no-win situation. If we choose time away from family in order to pursue the praise of the world, we will have lost. Yet if we make the right decision while still holding to at least some of the values of the world, we will deprive ourselves of some of the joy and progress that would normally follow making the right choice. We will find ourselves feeling conflicted, slightly hollow, and not as satisfied as we could and should be. Our idolatry will have robbed us, and our spiritual progress will be stunted in comparison to what it could be, all because we are limping along following both God's and the world's ideas. We will question our abilities and worth because the world will be telling us that we are worthless, and we kind of believe them. While they are not alone in this, stay-at-home moms often particularly struggle with this idea because the world is very, very anxious to tell them that they are not spending as much time as they should on the things the world values. To the degree that we accept the world's way of setting values and priorities, we will lose out on the ability to find contentment and satisfaction in doing the things of God for godly reasons. In some way, this will be true of all of us, regardless of our vocation or how we spend our time. The Savior warned us about this repeatedly. 
For example, he berated Peter for savoring, quote, not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. He also warned us that even those who had received and nourished the word could have the gospel choked out by, quote, the cares and riches and pleasures of this life. Even with these warnings, it seems we continue to allow ourselves to be influenced by the world. I have not done a scientific study of this, but my impression is that Latter-day Saints tend to follow the trends of the world around them, lagging just a little behind. The rates of successful marriages, family sizes, the immodesty of our clothing, the crudeness of our entertainment, and so on, usually follow the trends of the world. We just stay slightly better. We kid ourselves that we're being holy because our shorts or skirts are not as short as everyone else's, and our topics of conversation are not as crude as the world around us. But the reality is that if our standards are so constantly affected by the world's, it doesn't matter that we are doing better than everyone else. The world is still setting our standards, not God. I have noticed that in areas of the country or world where issues such as same-sex marriage, gender leadership equality, family size, and other social matters are all the rage, our members tend to struggle more with these issues. While awareness of such issues is important and listening to others' ideas can help us seek further direction from God, we must also be careful that we are neither blinded by the mists of Satan's sophistries nor so afraid of those mocking from the great and spacious building that we let our opinions be set by others rather than by the true doctrines of God, as Elder Oaks warned us two years ago in General Conference. You see, so much of how we think about these issues is set by those in Hollywood or songwriters, those who sit behind news desks, stand in front of the chalkboard, who speak in the halls of Congress or write columns and blogs. We often don't realize how much these things have affected our thinking and the way we view the world. We should be extremely wary of these sources, for God's ways are higher than their ways, and His thoughts are higher than their thoughts. Too many of them are those who Nephi warned would, quote, revile against that which is good and say that it is of no worth, close quote. When we allow such people to influence our thinking even a little, we will find ourselves feeling an internal conflict as we try to reconcile the part of us that believes what God has told us with the part of us that has, without our notice, started to savor the ideas of the world. As we hobble ourselves by following both the ideas of God and the world, the conflict between these competing ideas will sooner or later create some kind of crisis. For listening to the world is akin to pulling on the water ski rope of life, and the only possible result is that we will fall flat on our backs. Sometimes these crises come in the shape of not feeling sure what we should do with our lives. Sometimes it comes at the cost of our self-esteem, and other times it creates a cost that our families, ward members, and others must pay. Most often, all of these things happen. Sometimes the conflict causes a crisis of faith. This shouldn't surprise us. The ways of the world are in direct conflict with faith, and so the messages of the world are sometimes subtly and sometimes overtly anti-religious. When we harbor the cancerous ideas of the world, they will eventually attack and kill the pure cells of faith which make up our spiritual body. When this happens, we may be able to live with the cancer for a while, but sooner or later there will only be two options. Either the tumors of worldly thinking will kill our spiritual lives, or we will have to cut the cancer out. Sometimes these crises arrive over social issues. We should expect this. Even if they have good intents and are acting the best they can according to the knowledge they have, we need to be aware that those who live in the great and spacious building have made a full-time vocation out of mocking those who hold to the rod and partake of the fruit of the tree of life. 
Thus, we can expect that when we cling to God's way of thinking, there will be many who will try to make us feel stupid for doing so. When we stand up for truths such as morality, marriage, revelation, prophets, priesthood, and the inspiration of Scripture, there will be those who do their very best to make us feel parochial, backwards, uncultured, unthinking, unsophisticated, and foolish. These scoffers are very good at what they do and somehow find a way to make it sound as if they are the ones on the moral high ground. The inhabitants of the great and spacious building greatly outnumber us, and they can make it seem as if we are so silly and so alone in our way of thinking. As a result, often we adjust our thinking in order to align ourselves with these seeming sophisticates. At other times, we just remain quiet, hoping no one will notice our faithful viewpoint. Either way, we get lost in the mists of darkness as we loosen our grip on the iron rod. At other times, these crises arrive over historical or doctrinal issues. This also shouldn't surprise us. As we have said before, God's ways of thinking are higher than ours, and thus we shouldn't be surprised when we don't understand everything He has said or done. I have spent my adult lifetime studying the translation of the Book of Abraham. Some have experienced a kind of crisis over what the world has to say about Joseph Smith's abilities to translate and how it relates to the Book of Abraham. While we will not go into detail here today, I can tell you that careful study and research has provided very strong and well-supported answers for all of the major questions those in the Great and Spacious Building have thrown at us. Note that I said all of the major questions, but I did not say every question. There are still questions about the translation of the Book of Abraham for which we have no answers. In fact, I have sat down numerous times and tried to come up with hypotheses that could account for all of the facts we have at our disposal. I have tried to propose theories from a non-believing perspective and from a believing perspective. I believe that the non-believing theories have far more holes in them, but in truth, nothing I have thought of can account for all the data we have. And in some ways, this is very comforting to me. If we think about it, wouldn't we be surprised if we could understand exactly how God works when He helps a prophet with an inspired translation? Frankly, given my current limited and finite mind, I would be a bit disappointed if I was capable of understanding just how God works. It would imply that God's state isn't really that far advanced from mine. In fact, it would be a fair bit of pride for any of us to think we can understand all the what's and why's of God's historical dealings with His people, prophets, and scriptures. Let me say again, His thoughts are higher than ours. Now, trusting in His ideas is like allowing the boat to pull you out of the water and amazing things are in store for those who do. In contrast to the world, trusting in something we can't fully understand is laughable, and so they point their fingers and mock, all while standing in a great and spacious building that has no foundation and is destined to fall, putting all of its inhabitants flat on their backs like so many of those I was teaching to ski. Still, as they mock, many others who are holding to the rod will loosen their grip and get lost in the mists of darkness and limp along between two opinions. Yet those who have tasted the goodness of the fruit can remain strong even when they don't fully understand everything. Even when they aren't eating the fruit at the moment, their memory of how delicious the fruit is tasted or of how they felt when they had the Spirit with them can be enough to help them withstand the ideas and mockings of the world. Now, none of this is to imply that we cannot learn things of value from the world around us. We can. In fact, we are commanded to learn wisdom from the best ideas and books available. But we must learn to sift these ideas through the gospel rather than sift the gospel through the world's ideas. Our values and priorities must be derived from God, or else we will eventually abandon them and journey towards the great and spacious building. You see, we must be what God calls a peculiar or a holy people. 
At its most basic root, the word holy means to be set aside or different than everything else. To use President Worthen's phrase, we must be etherealized. If we are truly going to be holy, we will have to overcome our desire to fit in and think like everyone else and instead relish the idea of thinking more like God and less like this world. That is why God commanded his Latter-day Saints to, quote, Go ye out from Babylon, leave quote. Leaving intellectual Babylon and becoming holy, etherealized, or peculiar will cause us to be like Enoch's people who, quote, confessed they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, close quote. In other words, many of the ways you think and feel now, hopefully, as you leave behind the world, will eventually come to feel foreign to your higher, holier way of thinking. Knowing all of this, we must ask ourselves what we should do about it. While we all of us must do these things, I will phrase them in terms of what you must do, for I want each of you individually to think of how these things apply specifically to you. Let me suggest five things you must do if you are to avoid limping between two opinions and pulling your legs out from under yourself. First, you must conclude, as Elder Oaks once said, that, quote, the followers of Christ must think differently than others, close quote. You must determine that you want to follow God's way of thinking more than the world's way. Second, you must honestly ask yourself what worldly-influenced ideas you are clinging to and then do everything you can to eradicate those ideas from your system. A regular, good, hard self-examination will have to be engaged in periodically throughout your life, but especially in times of crisis. Third, you will not be able to successfully identify the ways your thoughts are inspired by worldly gods rather than by the one true God without God's help. Thus, you must do all you can to have the Spirit with you as you engage in introspection and whenever you encounter new ideas. After all, it is only the Spirit that can make you holy or that can cause you to think and see as God does rather than the world. In other words, you must be etherealized. Left to your own fallen devices, you can only think and see from the world's fallen perspective. You will need the help of God to see things as He would have you see them. Fourth, after having done this, you will have to do all you can to have the Spirit with you regularly so that you can maintain a holy perspective rather than give in to the ever-encroaching ideas of the world. We all know the things that we have to do to have the Spirit with us. Despite your busy schedules, you must never take a break from engaging in activities that invite the Spirit into your lives. Because it is so important to engender a regular relationship with the Holy Ghost while you are here at BYU, let me echo Elder Ballard's counsel from General Conference just last month. Quote, If you are attending a church school, consistently include a class each semester in religious education. Close quote. Fifth, when you are struggling because the way you are thinking or feeling at the moment seems to conflict with how God would have you think or feel, remember the times you have felt the Spirit in the past. We won't feel the Spirit at all times, and sometimes, just when we are not, the mocking fingers of the world will hurt and hurt deeply. But at those moments, we must remember that we have felt God teach and testify to us of the eternal truth and import of His ideas, and then we must hold fast to those ideas, just as we did when we felt His testifying Spirit. If we do, He will continue to sanctify us or make us more holy, and with His help, eventually, we will become the kinds of beings that are capable of thinking and feeling just as He does. We will be holy beings, and the doctrines of the priesthood will distill upon our souls as the dews of heaven, and our everlasting dominion will flow unto us without compulsory means forever and ever. It is my prayer that this will happen for all of us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. 
You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Consecrating Ourselves Unto God with thoughts from C. Raymond Smith and Carrie M. Yulstein. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.